Um, you can find out more about all of our programs um, uh, at the Virginia Historical Society website, or you can pick up information on your way out at the museum shop. And now, if you will silence your cell phones, uh, we can get to tonight's program. Um, as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And tonight's lecture is a special one. It marks the second of two programs we've done this year that are co-sponsored by our good friends at the Richmond National Battlefield Park. And we're fortunate uh, he to have uh, with us tonight Dave Ruth, the superintendent of the park, who will introduce tonight's program. Dave. So thank you all for being here tonight. And it, it's great working with Andy, too. You know, we just got through the uh, 150th Susquecentennial commemorative programming. And at one of our last, I wouldn't say last, but some of our um, towards the end of the 150th planning sessions, Andy was, was there as we were talking about what we're going to do to commemorate Richmond's fall in April of 65. And, and so after we tired of some of our more creative things, he said, let's do some interpretive flashing. And I said, well, you know, if we want to get a crowd, that's the way to do it. Um, he said, no, I mean flash interpretation, you know, like the singers that show up at a mall and, and start singing in unison suddenly. And, and so we took his suggestion to heart, and on the April 3rd date of the fall of Richmond in 2015, we had these interpreters out there in vans, and they pulled up uh, down in Shaco Bottom amidst all of the, the, the lunch uh, workers that were out there and suddenly started talking about, the Yankees are coming, get your money out of the banks. And they didn't know what was exactly going on, but they really had a new appreciation for for interpretation at a, a level that really, um, really brought them into the story. And now we've moved beyond the Civil War commemoration to the commemoration of Reconstruction. And I'm really glad the Virginia Historical Society has agreed to be our partner in these lectures, um, the second of the, of the series. And it's also really fun introducing these events uh, when the speaker is one of your own staff. And tonight, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mike Gorman uh, to an audience that may already be quite familiar with Mike and much of his superlative work that he's done in researching Richmond's complex history. Uh, Mike is a ranger historian, as I mentioned here, on the staff at Richmond Battlefield, but it wasn't always that way. He actually started his National Park Service career down at Petersburg, then he uh, transferred up to Fredericksburg, uh, then back to Richmond for a short time before he moved up to India, Independence National Historic Park, um, where he, uh, like many of us, got his first permanent um, National Park Service position. And then in 2003, we had a position open here in Richmond, and Mike agreed to come back to serve here in, in the city, but the negotiations with the partners up there, our friends at Independence, uh, weren't exactly smooth, and the, the discussions quickly evolved into like a baseball negotiations. They wanted him to stay for the full summer, and we demanded that he come to Richmond for spring training. And in the end, we actually, uh, in our version, we did lose a draft pick in order to, uh, to get Mike down here as soon as possible, but we, we ended up getting him back to the city of his birth and his first love, Richmond's history. And since then, uh, and largely on his own private time, he created and continues to operate a website called Civil War Richmond, which is an online research project that documents the various sites and personalities uh, located here in Richmond during the Civil War. And I've talked to many people who have had spare moment and thought they'd take a peek at the website, and they ended up scrolling through it for hours. And his work is absolutely fascinating, and I recommend it as one of the best sites associated with history really on the web today. And when Mike is not working at the park or adding to his web information, he spends time writing and has authored numerous articles about the war, including Lincoln's trip to Richmond, which is a Virginia Historical Society publication, 
and he continues to engage in the research for his new book on Richmond Civil War photography. And as many of some of you folks on the staff uh, at the battlefield know, you can always hear when Mike finds a new photograph. There's loud eruption from, from the office, and Bobby Crick has to tell him to calm down. And uh, it's, it's certainly a, 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 a subject of love um, for, for Mike. And additionally, in 2011, he served as historical advisor on the set of Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, and more recently on the film Free State of Jones. Tonight, he's going to share with you some of the most recent historical research that actually evolved as, as early as last night, or as late as last night, um, into a research talk that's entitled A Manner Which Would Not Have Been Permitted Towards Slaves, Race, Reconstruction, and Memory in Post-Civil War Richmond. His presentation will focus a great deal on Chimborazo, the Confederate hospital that stood on Richmond's eastern outskirts and serves as our current park headquarters. The hospital story was the premier episode that we told there, but Mike's research has impacted hugely how we now look at that resource as a site that has so many layers of history piled on top of it, which is so typical for our, our city of Richmond. Um, and I've talked to, um, to many folks this summer who have been so excited about the kind of material that Mike has, has developed, which we're going to see for the first time tonight, which has really uh, caused us to look at Chimborazo in an entirely different light of the Civil War and its reconstruction past. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and step aside and invite Mike to the stage. And I want to, again, thank you all for being with us tonight. Thank you. Well, it's always nice to have an introduction like that from your, from your boss. Uh, well, again, thank you uh, for those of you that, uh, that came out, especially if you intended to come. When we were originally going to do this, um, it, was, it was a real crushing blow for me because uh, those of you that know me know that I spent a lot of time whipping myself into this frenzy, so I'm just right on the frosty edge there. Uh, and I was there, man. I was right there. I was going to give you the most awesome show I could. And my boss called at you know, 9.30 in the morning and was like, the show's canceled. I'm like, stop kidding. You know, that's not cool. And uh, you know, it's really, I'm like, oh, no. And so I thought I might never give this. And uh, so I'm really, really thankful to the Virginia Historical Society for rescheduling uh, because this is something I have uh, worked up to now twice. <clears throat> So here it is. <laughs> Quick confession. I'm a Civil War geek. <laughs> you, you, you could have gone, hi, Mike. <laughs> I'm very, very comfortable talking about the Civil War because uh, it's, it's so clean. It, it sound, sounds odd to say that, but you can tell. There's, there's guys wearing gray, and there's guys wearing blue. And this is a battlefield at, say, Fredericksburg. And those people wearing the different uniforms, flying their different flags, meet and they fight. And you can see there's a measurable result. Somebody wins. Somebody loses. And you can understand the war that way. A very, very narrative-based, sight-based understanding. And I'm sure a lot of you are like me, that when we get to college and we take that inevitable Civil War and Reconstruction class... Reconstruction is the stuff that you got to like a week before the end of the semester and kind of raced through, right? And basically, the, the narrative that you got there was all this intense and intricate killing, mass killing during the Civil War. Oh, my gosh, you can't help but look. And then, oh, uh, the war ended, and uh, there was Appomattox, and Lincoln got shot, Andrew Johnson, and uh, he got impeached. Uh, he was giving away pardons right, left, and uh, then Reconstruction was over. Okay, have a nice summer. <laughs> so which one are you going to find more interesting? You can't go in the Park Service to a reconstruction site. Well, now you can. <laughs> I'm proud of that one. You can't, you can't go to see this place where this thing happened. We look at reconstruction in a very top-down way. We look at it with politicians involved. Washington has de declared this. Congress has done this. Uh, you don't look at it from the bottom up. And this has changed for me. 
largely due to a friend of mine. Uh, is Emmanuel Dabney here? Yeah. You're here. <laughs> yeah, this is his fault. <laughs> so about, what was it, two years ago, uh, we were chatting on, on Facebook, as we often do, sending each other different sources and resources that have been digitized. And he says, ooh, the Freedmen's Bureau records have been digitized. I'm like, oh, cool. Let me take a look. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to get into that tonight. Suffice to say, it changed the way that I looked at everything related to Reconstruction because it flipped the narrative. No longer am I looking at it from the top down, what Congress does or what the governor does. I'm looking at it from people on the ground with names and places and specific events, just like we in the Park Service love to talk about. And it's electric. So why is it that we've always sort of looked at Reconstruction as this big thing, as opposed to the specific thing of the Civil War? Well, my answer is simple. Historians are lazy. <laughs> we are very comfortable, very comfortable putting on our blinders and saying, I'm a Civil War historian, or I'm a uh, political historian, or whatever it is. We box ourselves up, and we, sit, and we say, well, I'm just, if it doesn't involve my thing, I'm not going to look at it. Right? I could tell you everything about what happened here in Richmond or around Richmond from 1861 to 1865. But it was just like this. 1861, 1865, blah, 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 blah. I was lazy. And I'm going to atone for that tonight. So sure, we've all heard the standard story that Reconstruction was pretty easy in Virginia. In fact, that's what I was taught. Uh, coming up in school that they compared to, say, Mississippi or Louisiana or deep south states where Reconstruction took on a very cruel and violent uh, nature that here in Virginia, uh, everything was pretty cool. In fact, uh, you know, everything was just chugging along and then we, we, uh, we passed, the, we, we, we actually went into convention, got back into the Union uh, earlier than most, 1870 Reconstruction ends. Yay us. Go Virginia, right? Yeah, but that was three, four years there that you're just blowing off just like that. So let's do what I did and hopefully not get you addicted as well by focusing on this on the ground. The Freedmen's Bureau in Richmond, they came in in 1865 almost with the Union Army that occupied it. And as I mentioned before, all their records have been digitized. Look directly into the eyes of the beast. There they are. And each one of those represents uh, about three or 4,000 digitized pages. So if you click a link like that, say goodbye to your free time. <laughs> I'm just saying. This was done through the uh, Mormon church. And uh, if, you, if you're inclined to do it, you can get on Family Search, put in uh, Freedmen's Bureau records, and go to town. I'm not encouraging you to do this. I'm just saying that's how you do it. But what uh, is so remarkable about this is this, too, began a place-based journey for me. Uh, where was the Freedmen's Bureau? I didn't even know. Talk about being a slacker. I mean, people consider me to be an expert on Civil War Richmond. I couldn't have told you where the Freedmen's Bureau was. Well, now I know. It was right on Capitol Square, right there, in what had been the Winder Building during the Civil War, where everybody uh, came to get passes, uh, passports through the lines, and all that kind of stuff. And it was one of the very few buildings that the Confederates actually built. There it is. And you can see the, uh, the Washington Monument there in the, in the background. That's Capitol Square, and there's St. Paul's, and there it is, this long building. And that's where, basically, Reconstruction is going to be administered all during the Reconstruction years. I couldn't resist, because I'm a photo geek, that I realized once I found that, that I had a photograph of the building from 1865, and there it is. I know. At first, it was used by the Christian Commission. You can see their banner there. But then later, all of this is going to be the Freedmen's Bureau. Now, a little bit of word about the Freedmen's Bureau before we get too much into the weeds. Uh, they came in in June and basically started taking on all the affairs of the freedmen in Richmond, all of them. So if there was a problem with employment, uh, you'd go to the Freedmen's Bureau. If, there was, if, if somebody hadn't paid you for your labor, you'd go to the Freedmen's Bureau. And they did a lot of work trying to uh, rectify a terrible problem that was the sudden influx, and I'll go so far as to say refugee crisis, of former slaves coming into Richmond in 1865. While they were there, this man, who is a phantom, drives me crazy, this guy right here, 
who signed his name H.S. Merrill, <clears throat> what's your name, buddy, uh, administered the Freedmen's Bureau. And you're going to hear from him a lot uh, today. In fact, you just read the, the wonderful quote from him. Merrill is something of a true believer, you might say. And that's something that uh, conflicts with a lot of the, the thought that I grew up with. You know, Reconstruction was this cruel, uh, you know, almost mustache-twirling Yankees coming down and, uh, and foisting their way of thought. onto This, this guy is a, is a true believer. He's, a, he's an honest-to-God. Um, I, won't, I won't call him an ideologue, but he really feels at his heart that the right thing to do is to help these freedmen. And I have an enormous respect for him and what he did, uh, especially as he did uh, superintend the issuing of rations and um, getting people employment. How do you do it? You've got 30,000 people rushing into town that need a job. What do you do? It's a practical problem. What do you do with these people that are suddenly here? Nobody seemed to have expected this. You, you, you'd think there'd be, okay, when we capture a city, this is likely to occur. Let's have a plan. You'd think. But the end of the war caught everybody flat-footed. Okay, the fighting has stopped, but now we've got a practical problem. In June of 1862, the military commander of Richmond, Henry Halleck, noted that it is estimated by the governor that there is at present a colored population in Richmond from 30,000 to 35,000, more by far than can obtain employment. So here they are. What do you do? The answer is to move them to a former Confederate hospital. And on June 24, 1865, Merrill wrote, I have the honor respectfully to report that there are near 200 refugees at Camp Chimborazo occupying quarters that are required for the blacks at the almshouse and to request that an order may be issued for their removal to the vacant barracks. See, he's moving them. It is desirable that they be removed as early as practicable so as to enable me to clear the almshouse of the Negroes and quarter them all together at Camp Chimborazo. And so this site which, if you had talked to me two years ago, thanks, Emmanuel, thanks a lot, <laughs> I would have told you, you know, it probably just became what it is after the war, wood and brick. Well, it did become what it, what it is at its core. It became shelter. And there it is. This was Chimborazo Hospital uh, right about the time that the Freedmen's Bureau took over. It was vast. 3,000 to 4,000 beds during the Civil War. Well, it sort of stands to reason now Okay, you've got this refugee crisis, and you've got these large Confederate hospitals all around the town. Hmm, what might we do with those hospitals? And sure enough, in July of 1865, Lieutenant Henry Wagner of the 11th U.S. took command of Chimborazo and put it under military control. The next week, Colonel, Colonel Brown, the assistant commissioner in Richmond, reported for the first time about Chimborazo. And he said, the only barracks occupied by Negroes in the vicinity of Richmond are those known as the Chimborazo Hospital. There has been no fitting up of these since they were evacuated by the rebels. They are simply coarse hospital barracks, nothing more. Owing to high rents in the city of Richmond, a portion of these barracks has been set apart as homes for such persons as could not afford the exorbitant rents and for the reception of such persons as have been forced to leave their homes by their former masters. The whole number of freedmen received at these barracks is 2,571. All of these, except 818, have found work and homes elsewhere. All of the 818 still left are supporting themselves. Meanwhile, there have been 98 white persons similarly accommodated with quarters in these barracks, 60 of whom are supported by the government. The entire population of Richmond is computed by officials at 50,000 colored people. 50,000. You remember what Halleck said? 35,000. In that was in June. By July, late July, it was 50000 Like all federal agencies, uh, <clears throat> money was tight. In August, uh, the Freedmen's Bureau ordered inspections to assess the ability of the, the freedmen to pay rent for their quarters. And you see this over and over again, these, these fundamental assumptions, this narrative that's driving them, that, okay, slavery's over, go get a job. How? Right? This is August. This is the middle of summer. If you'd been a, a farmhand, um, you know, harvest isn't until later. What do you do? And you see all these really interesting things happening. And these words that pop up. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau is constantly getting these men indentures. 
Is this slavery by another name, you know, a term of service uh, to a particular person? I would love to know more. I simply don't. In August of 1865, Captain Henry Cox, who was commanding Chimborazo, was ordered to, quote, please employ no more labor at your camp on account of this bureau. In other words, we're broke. <laughs> and on August 17th, Chimborazo was reported to be at full capacity, meaning about 5,000 men. Interesting things started happening around the, the hospital. I'll show you a map of it. Uh, this was made in 1862, uh, showing you the vastness of the hospital. You only saw a bit of it there in that photograph, which was made, by the way, from right there. So the photograph you just looked at was looking this way. This is Broad Street right there. This is 29th Street. So here's 32nd where the park is today. And our building, if you come there, is right there. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about Chimborazo. Imagine this completely filled now with former slaves trying to get a job, trying to find a new way of life. But because of the lack of funds and because of the, uh, basically, the ramshackle nature of these buildings, <coughs> by September 11th, 1865, things had gotten bad, capital letters. Lieutenant Friday, who was now the commander of Chimborazo, was ordered to be relieved. Merrill had had enough. This guy had been mouthing off to him and not doing what he said, and Merrill blamed the conditions at Chimborazo on this man. And when he relieved him, imagine this letter being directed towards you. He says, the manner in which Camp Chimborazo is conducted is a discredit to the Bureau. It is so much under my charge that I feel responsible for its condition and its discipline. My directions and suggestions to Lieutenant Friday of late seem to have been almost totally disregarded. Friday's out, and you would think, okay, Merrill's taking this right in hand. The next commander of Chimborazo was a sergeant. Now, this is September. The weather's turning cold. What are you going to do? This is a practical problem. These people are going to literally freeze. Do we have the money to buy them wood, provide food for them? The answer increasingly was, was no. This was being reported on up in the north, and in Maine, they ran an article, I'm serious, in Portland, said, complaints have reached us that every morning, gangs of Negroes from Chimborazo Hospital tear up the track and trestle work of the York River Railroad in order to get firewood to burn. The directors and stockholders of the road are opposed to this action of the colored population <laughs> and have taken steps to stop it. I love 19th century understatement. And any nearby fences, if you lived in it, you can see quite a few residences up here. See all these? They're constantly tearing up the, the fences. At one point, they're tearing apart the only bridge into the site. And you can look at this, as a lot of the white newspapers did, as proof of this uh, you know, Negro depravity. But what would you do? It's quite simple. You need a fire. And the Freedmen's Bureau isn't giving you money. And in an attempt to reduce the population of Chimborazo, the Freedmen's Bureau does something pretty interesting. They start giving away free transportation to cities in the north. <laughs> it's a practical problem, right? We all like to imagine that people are ideologically driven and they're going to do, you know. No, it's practicality that drives us, drives you. We've got 50,000 former slaves here in Richmond. Can somebody in the north take them? And what you see here is almost every day, uh, people getting passes to go to Baltimore or to Philadelphia or some other northern city. And of course, the Freedmen's Bureau, once they've reached Baltimore or Philadelphia, they're done with them, and I can't follow them. It really is frustrating. Uh, so all we're stuck with is looking at what happened to the people still in Richmond. But by February of 1866, conditions had gotten desperate. Merrill wrote again, the quantity of wood I now have on hand will barely keep the necessary fires at the hospitals, orphanage, and offices of the, of the Bureau going for the remainder of the present week. Many applications for the relief of suffering destitutes by small issues of fuel are daily made, which I am compelled to decline for lack of supply. Please instruct me whether supplies are to be purchased or to be expected. Very respectfully, H.S. Merrill. You can almost hear his desperation working for these people. In the National Freedman, a fascinating uh, publication that was put out to advocate for freedmen in the North, 
A.E. Williams reported an aged woman was found in a dark cabin without fire, literally clothed in rags. She had eaten nothing but a few cabbage leaves for two days. While clothing her from our scanty supply of garments, a bag of dry beans was found and given to her. She clutched them with her long bony fingers, exclaiming, God bless you, this is the best of all. In another, a family of five children were found. The mother was seated on a low stool before an expiring, expiring fire. A dying child in her arms, around her were four hungry, ragged children. A miserable apology of a bedstead stood in one corner without a bed and only one ragged blanket for a covering for the entire seven. This is getting bad. And the worst is yet to come. What do you, what do you think is going to come of this situation? By the end of January, Lieutenant E.G. Townsend of the Freedmen's Bureau said, on account of the number of inmates at Camp Chimborazo, it is necessary that a larger guard be stationed at these camps, not only to discharge properly the guard duty required of them, but to protect the inmates from the abuse of white boys and lads who daily collect to throw stones and to fight them, endangering the lives of many innocent people and greatly disturbing the neighbors. If the freedmen in the city are to be left to the mercy of these youthful desperados or be deprived of the protection and redress afforded white citizens by the city police, they will be harassed continually and be unable to pursue their usual avocation with any degree of safety. In addition to these terrible conditions, they're actually being physically abused. What would you do? Well, the men at Chimborazo began organizing quasi-militias for their defense, drilling up at Chimborazo with arms. And the first, the reports are, are you know, kind of, isn't that cute? <laughs> That's what you hear in the Richmond newspapers. But as you might guess, in March of 1866, the headline read, rioting among the Negroes, a citizen wounded by them, three Negroes shot by the police. The newspaper published a very long and damning article describing what had happened. It reads like a running gunfight down Broad and Marshall Streets uh, engaging the city police, barricades, and the police could hear uh, off in the distance, fall in, Company A, you know, get ready, Company B. You know, they thought they were heading into a, a war. And that is exactly how this reads. Of course, when the police finally reached Chimborazo, everyone had scattered back into the various homes, and the police rounded up the usual suspects. 17 men were arrested for this riot at Chimborazo. Merrill didn't buy it and took the next three days seemingly doing nothing else to get these men out of jail. Heroic efforts on his part. And like I say, I don't encourage this, but if you read what he actually wrote, you can really tell that he is a true believer. And not just a true believer acting from some narrative of his own or political motive, but he actually knew what had happened. And by his efforts, the Richmond Dispatch, in March of 1866, posted a retraction. You really don't see this. It said, from our account of the fight at Chimborazo in yesterday's issue, it would naturally be inferred that there was an insurrectionary move on the part of the Negroes toward the citizens of the neighborhood. In fact, such was our impression from the accounts we gathered and when we wrote of it. Since that time, however, facts have been developed which show that the demonstration was nothing more than the result of several fights and disturbances between the young men and Negroes of the neighborhood and of Chimborazo. Everything has since been quiet. The next day, they went further. Merrill had done his job and was able to convince not only that the 17 should be released, but that five white men should actually be arrested. They were, and they were tried. With assault and battery, riot and threatening to burn down Camp Chimborazo. And the Richmond Dispatch corrected themselves again. There seems now to be but little doubt that the riotous conduct of the young men and boys in the neighborhood of Chimborazo was the principal cause of the riot of Friday night. They have not sense enough to see that they are treating free Negroes in a manner which would not have been permitted towards slaves. They get themselves into trouble and leave their friends to get them out of it, 
forgetting that it ought to be our pride to show that we are the friends of the Negro, so long as he is peaceful, industrious, and well-behaved. A manner which would not have been permitted towards slaves. Tells you what slavery might have been like. However, this violence, this concentrated violence, caused the Freedmen's Bureau to wash its hands. And they closed down Chimborazo. And listen to the reason that they gave. I have the honor to respectfully report that as a precautionary measure against the spread amongst the freedmen here of smallpox or other contagions or epidemic diseases now prevalent in the neighborhood cities and towns, I have directed the vacation on or before the first proximus of the barracks at Camp Chimborazo, occupied by the able-bodied Negroes. Also, that these inmates are rapidly finding quarters elsewhere, mostly in the country, many going to work on the railroad. As my present guard will be insufficient to properly protect these vacant barracks, and it is not probable that they will be further required for destitute freedmen, I respectfully request authority to sell the same at public auction. Well, the Richmond Dispatch saw through the subterfuge and crowed, this reign was long and peaceable, except when they took it in their heads to fight each other or quarrel and mutter and mutiny. But this Chimborazo Elysium could not last forever. Woe is me, ye niggers. And that was not the end. Despite the fact that the Freedmen's Bureau has left, when they say they sold those barracks, they sold them to the freedmen. And for a lot of these people, this was the first home they ever had. Schools were established in 1866 and continued to flourish. In fact, we know quite a bit about them. Uh, one of the schools was actually featured in Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper. And this is the only image we have, by the way, of the inside of one of Chimborazo's wards. And you can see the central chimney there and all the, the students lined up, sitting down, here at the Virginia Historical Society, they actually have one of the ledgers from the Chimborazo School. And I'm very much hoping to feature this uh, in a new exhibit that we're going to be having at Chimborazo. I would like for you to look at the ages, particularly, of these people as they scroll past. And you will see quite a diversity of ages. You will notice four-year-olds in the same school as 29-year-olds. That should tell you what you want to know about the conditions these people had grown up in. And for nearly three years, these schools flourished at Chimborazo and were well-funded by aid societies in the North. Other interesting things began popping up in the uh, Freedmen's Bureau records, like this one. This was in April of 1866. It says, I have the honor respectfully to request that two of the buildings at Camp Chimborazo be turned over to me to be given, one to Miss Van Lu, and one to Mrs. Harrison, both of whom are union ladies and were engaged during the war in furnishing aid to our prisoners and furnishing information for our army. Who's Miss Harrison? Ms. Harrison's place adjoins the camp, and she has suffered severely from depredations of the soldiers and occupants of the camp. Her fences and outhouses have been destroyed. She is now in very indigent circumstances and not able to replace them. Ms. Van Lu has suffered in the same way. In view of these facts and the assistance rendered the union caused by these ladies, I hope that you will be pleased to comply with this request. Elizabeth Van Lu? Chimborazo? Here it is. I had no idea. For those of you that don't know, Elizabeth Van Lue was a, a famous Union lady in Richmond and had been a spy during the war and had expended almost all her money, as you can clearly see, now as destitute as the very slaves that are now freed find themselves in, so was she. I do not know, nor does any historian, whether or not she did live at Chimborazo under the assistance of the Bureau, but here is a tantalizing hint that it was possible. But by April, Merrill had to write, that all the barracks at Chimborazo have been sold, and the number of inmates at present there are between two and 300. A large portion of this number are now leaving on losses of their dwellings. Does kind of follow. 
The freedmen who have been left to the number of nearly 1,000 are distributed amongst the county, and most of them have obtained employment. But as I said, a lot of those freedmen had bought the houses themselves and continued to live there. But the conditions did not improve, and in July again, there was another serious riot. As the Alexandria Gazette reported, on Sunday last, there was a serious riot between a number of boys and Negroes at Chimborazo Hill. Stones and firearms were freely used. During the riot, a citizen named Doyle, who was not in any way engaged in the riot, was shot and killed by a Negro who had crept up near him and shot him in the head. Not quite. It turns out what had happened was that there was a rock battle going on between the Negroes at Chimborazo and the whites down below at Rockets. And nothing happened until the whites charged up the hill in a mock, uh, you know, we're going to get you, and they turned around and defended themselves. Of course, you can guess how the Richmond newspaper played this one. That leads to sort of a period of strange normalcy. While the Freedmen's Bureau is out and the camp is technically closed, the people continued to live there. And you can see, as late as 1876, buildings from Chimborazo still there. This is 1876. So this is going to go on. And you get this sense of resignation from the white press. The Richmond Dispatch was particularly uh, virulent. But the Richmond Whig tended to be a little bit more even-handed. So it's quite a surprise in November of 1866 when the Richmond Whig describes this as chimpanzee town. Of course, you've got more or less this shanty town outside the city limits. Uh, remember, this is now a squatter's camp. The Freedmen's Bureau is out. Nobody really knew who owned the land. Uh, the city tried to figure this out. They had to hire a team of lawyers to do it. Uh, and they couldn't figure it out. But one of the problems was, you can see right down here, there's the city line. So city, not city. Cops, no cops. <laughs> right? You can imagine <coughs> that a lot of people saw this as a lawless place, and it likely was. So to bring some kind of order to this, the city, in typical 19th century style, annexed the place. And not by much either, just enough to embrace. You can sort of see it here. There's the old city line. There's the new one, right? That is not an accident. They are absolutely doing this to solve the problem of Chimborazo, a problem for them. Mrs. Cornelia Lorton, who lived right there, see that Lorton house right up there, wrote to the city council in 1869 that basically I shouldn't have to pay taxes because you haven't done anything to curb the, the roads or uh, provide me security in any way. And this was an amazing find for me. It's actually in the, the unprocessed papers of the, the uh, city council. Don't ask me how I found it. It was a long story. But these words just jump right off the page. She says, we are cut off from the city by a deep ravine. See, the ravine is actually right, right in here. And only a small and unsafe footbridge exists to cross it. We have a Negro camp in front of us. No police, no lights, no water. Can raise neither hogs, fowls, vegetables, or fruit, owing to the thefts committed in our midst. Nor can we keep our gardens enclosed as the fences are taken by the suffering Negroes for fuel. The footbridge is also being taken down, and soon there will be nothing left to cross. We are liable to pistol and gunshots fired from the camp to frighten thieves, as there is no protection for the honest white or black population. Consequently, our property is almost valueless. There are three other families in the like situation, and none of them are able to pay the tax. Did you notice she's sympathizing with her neighbors now? Not just her white neighbors, but the suffering Negroes in front of her. I wonder if she would have said that before the war. And that was in 1869. And we know that in 1870, political events, big picture events, Virginia is readmitted to the Union. Does that end the story of Chimborazo? Not hardly. In 1874, in the final solution, I guess you might say, to this problem, the city bought it for a park. 
35 acres for $35,000, not bad. But nothing really happened on that front until about 1880, when we see in the Richmond Dispatch a sales notice. Auction sale of wooden buildings on Chimborazo Hill will be sold on the premises on Thursday, 15th of April, 1880, all the wooden buildings formerly used as dwellings to be removed in 10 days. What do you think that was? And sure enough, swept away now are all these buildings. Swept away is the squatter's camp. The former slaves are ordered to go. And you'd think that might end this story. It doesn't. By August of that year, the dispatch says Chimborazo is now assuming somewhat the shape and appearance of the park. Colonel Cutshaw is changing it from an eyesore to a thing of beauty to be a joy forever. Later, they reported Chimborazo Park, once occupied by a crowd which made night hideous, is now as lovely a spot as can be found. This is how you will see the site today. A lovely open air park. Right in the middle of it, the Weather Bureau put a big building where we now have our headquarters. So if you come to the park, you might find me here. And when I started working here, we knew there'd been a, a school for freedmen, but we didn't know any of what I just told you. We didn't know about what had actually happened at this particular place. And then in a strange fit of could only be done now kind of research, I turned up in a St. Louis newspaper this article. Old wartime hospital is now an aged Negro's home. And this is in 1900 in a St. Louis newspaper. And it goes on to tell, look at, look at the column space this takes up, right? To tell this amazing story about this man whom they called Broxton Harward. And it basically says uh, that when the hospital was closed down as a camp, everyone was ordered to go away. He picked up, along with several other of these men, picked up his building, refused to give it up, and moved it across the street. St. <laughs> Louis newspaper. Now, what's so remarkable about that is that this postcard was published at the same time. And we'd seen this before, and it seemed like one of those uh, cutesy, tell a nice story, you know, look at the old, the old man, he's got his little shack, isn't that lovely? Right? Look, look how, of course, they framed it with the Confederate flags all around, right? And it gives his name, too, and it says, corner of 31st and Broad Street, right? So we know now, oh, that was at 34 and Broad, and you can see that that is the same picture there. And there is Broxton Harwood. So the article said, all that now remains of the old Confederate hospital at Richmond, Virginia, is a small frame structure occupied by a Negro squatter, Old Broxton. After the war, Negroes took possession. Thousands found homes in the, period, or the different houses of the group, crowding them as never before. In the troublous reconstruction period when race feeling ran high, it was perilous for a white man to enter these precincts, and many a white invader paid at night the price of his hardihood in death. Note the narrative that they're continuing to run. But 20 years ago, the city of Richmond acquired the par property for park purposes. The squatters were ordered to move, led by old Broxton. Many of them clubbed together to get the old hospital buildings across the street to a vacant lot. In this, they were, for the most part, successful, squatting again on property owned by private persons. But the ravages of fire depleted the number of houses which had withstood the roughness of careless removal. Others were vacated when the landowners claimed their own. Finally, only the section of a house occupied by old Broxton remained. And a few months ago, he was compelled again to remove this to a back lot on an alley. This he has dwelt in since the war, and there he hopes to end his days in peace. And I sincerely hope that he did. But you see what I did there? I gave you a nice story happily ever after. Well, actually, thanks to the research that we can do now, 
and digitization, I can tell you what actually happened to him. And I was actually able to put the period on his story last night. So, of course, I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> he didn't live there the rest of his days. His daughter had married well, um, a funeral director, and they built a house up on O Street. And he lived with them for the next 10 years. There he died at some point, probably in 1910. He was shown in every city directory, every city directory as a laborer for the rest of his life. He died at the age of 81, always listing his occupation as a laborer. But it is of some cold comfort to imagine this man who had given birth to, well, not him, but his wife, had had five children in this ramshackle little house that when he died, that's where it happened. It's still there. Despite the fact that his son-in-law was a funeral director, I haven't been able to find his grave. But when his daughter died in 1951, I was able to establish once and for all what his name actually was. It's not Broxton Harward. It's Braxton Howard. <laughs> she, of course, had children as well. And Braxton Harwood's granddaughter lived there until 1993. You and I and many other people may have even brushed shoulders with Theodora Davis never knowing the amazing story of her family and the story of what made it possible. You can buy the house next to it where his daughter lived for about $193,000 today. It's sort of a silent monument now, isn't it? You couldn't drive past it now without knowing that to certainly house flipping. <laughs> I can show you what it sold for in 2014, $2,500. Yeah urban renewal in the form of Chimborazo, in the form of what's happening now, urban renewal. But no less of that peculiar mobility that existed during the Jim Crow era, and also to the tenacity and bravery and humanity of this one man who lived at Chimborazo when everything was a question mark, everything was up in the air, never knowing how it's going to play out, never knowing what narrative he was part of. Do any of you know which narrative you're part of? Tragedy, romantic comedy, <laughs> still got it. But as we recognize that bravery and tenacity and rebellious spirit in him, do we not see reflections of that in the Civil War? The people that fought so dramatically and sight-based during those times, I do. Not in, in a diminished or lesser way, but a direct way. And for years, I would have been content to ignore this and say that, oh, well, Chimborazo just became what it was, wood and brick. Eventually it did. Or we can kind of keep to our narrative and reach into his unknown grave to put him to work for us one last time and say that Reconstruction was a failure. Or that Reconstruction was a fiendish time. I can't do that to him, and I can't do it anymore. So his story is one of thousands of people at Chimborazo Hospital, who we can get tantalizingly close to, but only one with a photograph and a postcard and a house and a site now that we can forever say was a reconstruction site. And I hope that will help you understand not only the exciting events at Chimborazo after the war, but give you a micro history into reconstruction as well. And please, please don't let this stop here. We can do more, and we can do it better. Thank you very, very much. That, that Broxton Howard stuff just gets me. Yeah, an entertaining uh, story about an area that we all heard about. I know. It's amazing. Tell in Reconstruction, the uh, Union Army was uh, was here, at least a contingent was, and I assume there were 
both black and white troops. Yes, they were. Where were they encamped, and what was their role during Reconstruction? What was the role of the Union Army during Reconstruction? Oh, boy, this is a fascinating story. Uh, <laughs> you think that was cool? I <laughs> um, actually didn't know much about that either. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I've been aided, too, by a wonderful, uh, well, more back to the coolness of digitization. The University of Richmond has digitized all their thesis, master's thesis over the years, and they're online, the whole thing, so you can read them. <clears throat> I know I'm killing your free time, by the way. You should stop talking. To me. Uh, and this one was, was called The Military Occupation of Richmond. And I dug into this. And I got to tell you, folks, you know, master's theses can be hit or miss. Um, this one, I can't believe the research this guy did in the, in the 1970s. Um, and it was all about exactly what you're talking about. So I'm not just going to punt and say, go read him. But what's so fascinating is uh, that, you know, they're there this whole time. And everything uh, they're wrapped up in. Everything. So Chimborazo, uh, what's going on? They had a camp out near Bird Park called uh, Camp Grant, which was in the former Winder Hospital, which was just like Chimborazo, only bigger. Uh, so that was basically the military center for Richmond uh, for those five years. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's this amazing story. Now, interesting point that you brought up, white and black soldiers. At first, yes. Yes. There were USCTs who came in uh, when Richmond was occupied. But very quickly, this became an occupation force led by U.S. regulars, in particular the 11th U.S. Um, and that's a fascinating story all by itself. Uh, sure, there were, there were a lot of problems. Um, you can just imagine. I mean, these are soldiers on payday. I wonder what they did. Right? Uh, so you're, you're, if you read the newspapers, you get this fascinating peek at, uh, you know, of course, the bad ones, but uh, just sort of imagining that this is a militarily occupied place. There, there are regiments, whole regiments right here in Richmond. Remember, this is district number one of, of military reconstruction. So, you know, when we think about, you know, an occupation force like today in Afghanistan or Iraq, that's happening here with everything that you can imagine going on. Um, and if you, if you really want to sink your teeth into it, I highly recommend uh, it's by a man named Duggan, and it's called The Military Occupation of Richmond. And it looks at purely from a military standpoint, um, which is somewhat frustrating, but also kind of cool, especially as I'm a military historian. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he laments is that during his research for his master's thesis, he didn't have time to go into the Freedmen's Bureau stuff. Ha <laughs> 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 Who's next? Who's got one for him? Here. Yes, ma'am. Um, I heard you use the word men a number of times up there, and surely these men had wives and children. Were any yeah, of them what I did living there. at Chimborazo? I fell or? back on it. You called me out, and you're right to do it, because I'm so used to talking about the Civil War and fighting on a battlefield. Look what I did. Shame on me. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, I had to kind of stop research for this talk, because yesterday I was finding I mean, it always happens the day before. Um, it's like, why didn't I have this two months ago? But one of the things that I'm dying to check out, and to, to your question, is this uh, directory that appeared, I think it was in 1871. And so many of the addresses, they, they put all the colored people of Richmond in there with an asterisk to indicate that they were, that they were black. Yeah. Well, they're in there, too. And it'll say, living at Chimborazo. And so I'm thinking to myself, if you talk to me in about six months, because I'll probably tear this up tomorrow, that I'll probably have a pretty good census from that, from that year about who was actually living there. I would love to know. Uh, but certainly the Freedmen's Bureau uh, records indicate uh, about the same percentage as you'd imagine. A lot of them came with their wives um, and lived there. We know there was at least one marriage that took place there. Um, I'd love to know more about that. But absolutely, this is, this is very much a, you know, not just men. Very much men and women. Shame on me. I'm, military history bites, bites me in the butt. Oh, well. But good question. Thank you very much. Who's got another one? Um, you mentioned uh, trying to go through the directory yeah. uh, from 1871. But was Chimborazo and the people who lived there, were they enumerated in the 1870? U.S. Census? Oh, great question. Um, has anybody, <laughs> you might not be the kind of geek I am, has anybody actually played with uh, census work? Has anybody ever done that? It, it can be somewhat frustrating because they don't tell you where they are. They, they do it by wards of the city. So, you know, you can go from ward to ward. Um, 
as far as Har uh, I keep saying his, his name that I didn't know until last night. Um, in, in the case of Braxton Howard, uh, I was able to find no less than six different spellings for his name, uh, including Harris. I'm serious. Um, so you have to, you have to be you know, able to know, okay, who this guy is, who are his children, who is he next to? So one of my keys to this was, was, was Mrs. Lorton. Um, and so if you can find her, usually close by are going to be uh, this whole nest of, uh, and I'm sure that's who they are, but I can't prove it because it doesn't say at Chimborazo. Talk about frustrating. Right? I mean, I, I know I'm looking at their names. They're right here. But, you know, the, you know, we need certainty, right? And it just doesn't provide it. Um, but what is cool, like I said, that 1871 directory that I found yesterday, it says living at Chimborazo. So what I want to do is go, I know I'm a geek. I'm, it, it's okay. You pay me for it. But I'm gonna, I want to go to get a, the census from the directory and look at, you know, here's my list, and then go look at the 1870 census. And I think I'm going to be able to prove, you know, that's who they are. So... That's exciting to me, but great question. Wonderful question. Who's next? Where's Andy? Oh, there you are. You're sitting down. I'm just looking. Mike, um, for five minutes before you started, we were watching a picture, a panorama, and I know there's a story behind that. There are probably a million stories. You've seen one of my talks so far. And, uh, and particularly, tell us about on the left side, the ghost-like looking guy. That's <laughs> sort of a half picture. <coughs> All right, fine. Um, <laughs> as if you anticipated my PowerPoint. Um, this is an image made in 1865. Uh, in fact, I showed you the non-blown up version of this that's a variant. When I showed you the Freedmen's Bureau building, this is it. Okay, so this crowd is, is outside that, that building. And what you see over and over again um, are things blurring. Like, look at this kid, right? He's kind of got two faces, right? This guy, right, he's moving. Because remember, the exposure time is 5, 10 seconds. Okay? So anything that moves in that just becomes invisible. So if you see a ghost person, uh, everybody, I, I get it all the time. It's like, oh my god, it's a ghost. You know, it's, no, he moved. Uh, I think you're going to see your guy here, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's proof of life, actually, not death. <laughs> he moved. <laughs> uh, but, You'll see that a lot um, in, in 19th century photographs, just, just because of the, the nature of the exposure time. It, it, it's, it, like I said, I've, I've started to like it because it shows life. U.S. Christian Commission. This one right here? That? Yeah. They were using the same building there for a while. And uh, so the Christian Commission, which was also a charitable organization from the north, uh, set up shop in the same building. And the Freedmen's Bureau was there as well. So who knows? what these people are, are here to do. But I love that, that you see uh, what are clearly, uh, you can see African-Americans here and white people as well. Look at that guy. I love, look at these looks in here. These are great, right? This guy in the bowler hat with his wonderful collar. Uh, but, you know, talk about the difference in life. I mean, this is, this is a wonderful photograph that shows us every strata, every strata of society here in this one image. And I just had to include it because it's freaking cool. Time for one more question. One more question. Make it a good one. Really hit this one out of the park. No, no pressure. <laughs> I'm not sure this is a good ending, but you casually mentioned uh, that uh, many of the inhabitants of Chimborazo um, were sent or moved to the county. Now, there's a story. Yes, there's a story. Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, every month the Freedmen's Bureau records have this wonderful report that the commissioner would send up to Washington and report on the conditions of the freedmen here in Richmond and the county. And you see that over and over again. It's, it's like you kind of get this sense that in some way they're being placed with work somewhere in this county. Does that mean an indenture? Does that mean some hired position with maybe a former slave owner? I don't know. They just glowingly report that they're doing it, that, that we're, we're, we're getting rid of the problem in Richmond and moving it somewhere else, um, which is kind of interesting because eventually the Freedmen's Bureau here in Richmond was responsible for Henrico as well as Chesterfield. So they report on conditions everywhere. 
But if you do get into those records, it's fun. To, you'll find that monthly report, and it, it does tell you a lot. But what I really want to leave you with is not... I mean, you know, I'm standing up here behind this podium, and I've got a badge on and everything, and, I, you know, I'm just oozing certainty, right? I mean, you know, that's sort of a narrative that we tell ourselves, too, is that, you know, well, it's a lie. I don't know. Go further. You do it. Come on, join me. Um, there's, a, there's fascinating stuff out there that we can do now that we couldn't have done three years ago. This is the golden age of research. And, well, it's the dark ages of publishing, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being hokey when I say, please, all of you, uh, join us in this. It is a fascinating story, and the resources are there. We just have to look. It's quite that simple. Do you have any other questions? Thank you all.